All right, so Romans chapter 1, I want to begin with verse 18 and read through verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, how great is your love for all people, and how great is your faithfulness to your promises. And we ask for your help today to understand these vital words. Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see and comprehend the breadth and the the depth of of these texts, Lord, shall the, shall the church faint or fear when the comforter is near? Amen. As Paul moves to unfold all of the glories of the gospel, the gospel that he has been called to proclaim and to, to preach and to teach, he begins by demonstrating why we why we as people, the human race, need the gospel. Why we need salvation. And he says that it is because God's wrath is being revealed against our unrighteousness and our rebellion. So the whole human race is in a state of rebellion against God, lost, separated from God, blind to our own condition, And on the brink of facing God's judgment, which is already in motion, is already being revealed. To grasp this salvation that God has provided in the gospel, 
we must come to grips with our condition and the wrath under which we come. What these verses describe is the human race as a whole. From God's perspective, this is the plight of the whole human race. All of humanity ultimately is this. So even if you and I know people who are good neighbors and moral, honest, have integrity in their work, are caring parents, or even generous philanthropists. The human race as a whole is universally at enmity against God and opposed to his will and to his rule and faces his wrath. Now, last time we saw that verse 18 summarizes this unrighteousness of men and tells us that it's, it's key, it's flagship act of rebellion is to suppress the truth. All of humanity suppresses the truth. It is a willful act that makes us guilty before God. And the rest of these verses really show what this suppression of the truth looks like. And so we're looking at three ways we suppress the truth, which are really just three points that Paul makes to expose our real condition before God, our true state. And the first was we suppress the truth about God and are without excuse. God has made his eternal power and divine nature plain. That is, he has made them obvious to all of mankind since creation and therefore, we have knowledge of God. And such knowledge means that we are without excuse. Nature cannot reconcile us to God. It does not explain to us or reveal to us God's grace or how we can live in a way to please him. It can't enlighten us in how to worship him. And yet it gives us enough knowledge that we cannot claim ignorance. We cannot plead innocence. Verse 20 tells us that every person is without excuse. So to finish this point today then, let's look at verse 21, which explains how this knowledge of God leaves us without excuse. For although they knew God, so there is this type of knowledge of God that every person has. Every person that you speak to begins with some knowledge of who God is. They've just suppressed it. God's eternal power, his divine nature displayed in creation should cause humanity to honor him, to give him thanks we should acknowledge him, we should recognize him as the source of all of the life and the beauty and design and power in the world and thank him for it and seek him, ask for him, ask how we can please him and how we can know him. 
God has made this much truth obvious, but we suppress it. We push it down. And the damning result is that mankind has become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts have become darkened. The word futile means empty, without substance, without worth. It's, it's something that looks good, but is really a vapor. Foolish hearts, these are hearts that are, that's a willfulness, a willful rejection, darkness, thinking, futile in their thinking, and hearts. The heart is the, the center of your person. It is where the will resides. It is where you work out your decisions. It's the seat of understanding. It is where the futile thinking takes place. And when you think about it, this darkness isn't like physical darkness when we walk around in the dark. When we're in the dark, we know we're in the dark. Ow, my toe. Oh, what was that I stumbled over? When the lights go out, you're aware that you're in the dark. And you're aware that you're in the dark because you have seen the light. The lights have been on at some point. But this is different. The darkness of our hearts. The darkened heart doesn't know it's in the dark. It is self-deception. So futile thinking and darkened hearts mean that our understanding of our world and of ourselves has become empty and worthless, especially when it comes to determining what is right and what is wrong and understanding why life has meaning, why it has purpose. Futile thinking is a worldview. And at the very center of every person, where the knowledge of God should be cherished, where it should be pursued, there is only darkness. There is blindness that is incapable of comprehending the truth, including our own desperate condition. Only the light of the gospel can reach there. And so we suppress the truth about God and we are without excuse. And therefore, our condition is one of futility and darkness. No matter how much we try to tell ourselves, as the entire human race, that we are wise, that we are good, that we are progressive, that we are getting better, we suppress the truth by rejecting God, this truth about him that he's revealed. Secondly, we come to our second point here, verse 22. We suppress the truth by replacing God and are enslaved to sin. We suppress the truth by replacing God and are enslaved to sin. So this suppression of the truth then leads to a cycle 
of willful rejection and then corresponding judgment, corresponding retribution from God. So we've suppressed the truth about God. We are without excuse. And then in this lost, blind, empty condition, we continue to persist in willful rejection of God by replacing him. And Paul demonstrates this now in three cycles, a cycle that repeats itself here in this uh, willful replacing of God and then judgment. And the first one is in verses 22 through 24. People exchange glory for images... And God gives them up to dishonoring their bodies. The second one then is verses 25 through 27. People exchange the truth for a lie, and God gives them up to dishonorable passions. And verses 28 through 31 then, people refuse to acknowledge God, and God gives them up to a debased mind. That's the pattern. These are the cycles. Now, these are not different stages that humanity is working through, but there is in Paul's demonstration an intensification of them. He expands with each one. The description gets more intense and longer. So this first one then, beginning in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. With futile thinking and darkened hearts, mankind deceives itself into the illusion that it is attaining wisdom. This is our, this is our world's proclamation that we are progressing as the human race. That with all of our advancements, whether those are technological, medical, scientific at large, think about what we know and how much we can know today in contrast to even 20 years ago is mind-blowing how we can track hurricanes how we can see celebrations in other parts of the world and see other cultures and beam those all over the world. How we can track information, data, scientific studies. Not only have these advanced, they have, they have advanced in, with increasing speed and rate. And the world as a whole says we're advancing, but cannot change the soul, cannot change the heart. We've deceived ourselves into the illusion that we're attaining wisdom when God says you are only persisting in folly. We have really exchanged the glory for images, the creator for the creation. This exchange, this replacing of God is the fall into idolatry. 
Instead of enjoying the majesty and the splendor of God and his presence, knowing him as we were created to do, people have chosen to devote themselves to mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. And this is... uh, This is played out in the history of every culture and nation. Remember, this is a snapshot of humanity from the beginning to the end. We are idolaters. And these images are shadows. Sometimes the word image can be used in a positive way. Genesis chapter 1 tells us we were created in the image of God. But when image is used in this way, it means something that is a shadow, an empty representation of something else. These are shadows with no substance. They are false and empty relationships because they are mortal. That's the key distinction here. Mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. These are all creatures that are born into existence and die. Only God is immortal. This is part of his glory. This is part of the glory that we've exchanged, that we've given up. God is immortal But because of our darkened hearts, we pronounce this as wisdom instead of the tragic folly that it is. Verse 24, therefore, therefore, because man did this, God gave them up. God gave them up. Which does not mean that God gave up on them or that he simply let them go their own way. This God gave them up is not God kind of taking his hands off and saying simply, hey, if you want to live that way, you know what? I'm just going to let you. That's not what this means. Rather, it means that God has enslaved the human race to this cycle of greater sin and greater judgment. The phrase give up is used in the Old Testament when God would give up or hand over Israel's enemies to Israel for destruction in battle. I will give your enemies over to you. I will give them up. I will hand them over. It was also used in reverse to describe God's handing of Israel over to Israel's enemies when they had violated the covenant rebelled against God, and God was disciplining them. So this is not just abandonment. The picture here is not God just saying, okay, fine, you just go live and whatever, you know, let the circumstances take care of themselves. No, what's pictured here is a judge handing over a guilty prisoner for punishment. That's what this gave them up is. God hands humanity over to the horrible cycle of ever-increasing sin and retribution. As the church father Augustine said, the punishment of sin is sin. Because people exchanged glory for images, God gave them up to sexual immorality. 
Look at what he says here. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, what's the connection? Why? Because as a race, as a whole human race, because we worship images, would God give us up to sexual immorality? Well, one connection is that in the ancient world, sexual immorality and the worship of idols went hand in hand. They were, ob- they were often the same practice. To worship and engage in idolatry was to engage in sexual immorality. They were often joined. Also, we find, especially in the Old Testament, that the worship of idols was pictured as sexual immorality, adultery, cheating on someone you should be faithful to. So when God many times would come to the nation of Israel through the prophets and warn them about their worship of false gods, he would use the imagery of adultery. You're cheating on me. You were like a, a bride to me, like my wife. And now you are worshiping other gods is the same as adultery or fornication. So that is part of the reason, is that it pictures that. It is, a, it is a cycle of sin that pictures the faithfulness, faithlessness, the rejection of God for images. But also, sexual sin is different from all other sins because it is, because it is self-destructive. It is self-destructive. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 13 and then verse 18, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, Paul offers this argument in 1 Corinthians 6 because the Corinthians were buying into this idea that uh, uh, sexual um, activity was just a biological function. Ever heard that from our culture? It's just a biological function. In fact, they had picked up this uh, kind of slogan that, hey, The body's for food, and food is for the body. And they were applying this to sex. And they were saying, hey, it's just a biological function. And Paul is saying, no, it's not just a biological function. There is something much more deeper and intimate in personhood and how God has created men and women going on here than just biological function. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, we like to say that one sin is just like any other sin. And in one sense, that is true, isn't it? One lie would have cost Jesus his life as, in the, as a murder or, or, or an act of adultery. Sin is sin in that sense. And the sacrament, what, what did Adam and Eve do? They ate a piece of fruit that had been forbidden. That God had said no, he had drawn a line. And that was enough to cast the entire human race into sin. In that sense, all sin is the same. And it is forgiven. 
forgivable. A murderer can be forgiven just like someone who cheats on their taxes. There is forgiveness. But there is another sense in which not all sins are the same. And this is an example. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. It is self-destructive. There is nothing more enslaving than sexual lust. The wrath of God against humanity's idolatry is to hand them over to the slave master of sexual immorality to be consumed by it. That's what Paul is saying. Now, verse 25, he restates this in, a, in another example of this cycle. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. Now, this looks like a part of the sentence before it, but it actually begins the next thought as a parallel to verse 23, and you can see that. To exchange the glory of God for images is to exchange the truth of God for a lie serving the creature rather than the creator. It's an echo or a parallel. See, the essence of idolatry is the lie that the idol is living. This is one of the reasons in our statement as a church, Crossway Fellowship, we are called to worship and serve, glorify and serve the living God. The essence of idolatry is the lie that the idol is living, that the idol can see the plight or the need of the worshiper, that the idol can hear the cries of devotion and the cries of need of the worshiper, and that ultimately the idol can answer with help. That is the illusion. That is the lie of idolatry. And we may not worship and serve blocks of wood or marble statues, but is this not how we pursue wealth and possessions and entertainment? Is this not the same lie we believe that sexual gratification will provide for us, that whiskey and marijuana will soothe us? That lighted pixels on screens will divert us enough from our suffering, our boredom. These are not addictions. They are gods, and we worship and serve them when we feast on them. But they are all and every one a lie. They are a false god, an empty vapor. And those that are most deceitful are the good things in life because even those things become objects of worship. What you turn to when you're hurting, when you're confused, is your God. What you give yourself to, whatever that thing or person or activity is that if it were removed would make you angry, that is your God at the moment. 
whatever moment that might be. We truly are, our hearts truly are factories of idolatry. And Paul just says here, he has to interrupt himself, the creator is alone, blessed forever. Amen. And what he means by that is he alone is worthy of worship. And this blessedness of the creator is a blessedness and a worth that he has in and of himself that is intrinsic to him. It's what sets him apart. Amen. Now, verse 25 parallels verse 23. Verses 26 and 27 then parallel verse 24. The God has given them over. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul now expands on this retribution and what it looks like. Once once again, verse 26, God gave them up. God has handed them over to the enslavement of dishonorable passions. And that parallels dishonoring their bodies in verse 24. But whereas he ends in verse 24 with this dishonoring of their bodies, he identifies here specifically these passions as homosexuality, same-sex desires, acts, and relationships. Both women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I recognize, and so do you, that there is terminology at play in this discussion. The term homosexuality uh, is now offensive to many. The term heterosexual has been replaced with terms like cisgender, okay, and these kinds of things, uh, and so on. But I've, I've got to say that it's almost impossible to keep up with the constant fluctuations in, in, in the dictionary of the moral revolution. You almost can't keep up with it. So I know that I'm going to say use some terms. I'm just going to use them that some people might be offended by But at the same time, I also got to figure that anyone who's offended by my terminology is probably going to be less offended by my terminology than anything else I'm saying. So uh, there is that point in my favor, right? (laughs) Okay, so, but I just, I recognize that. Because of the moral revolution, these verses are probably the most controversial probably the most rejected part of Romans, maybe the entire Bible. They are the verses that draw the accusations of the Bible is antiquated. It is hateful. It is backwards. We have progressed way beyond this. It is the, these verses are receive the animosity of many. And if it's not flat out rejected, it becomes re-engineered to say things it doesn't really say. These verses are even disputed by those who claim to be Christians. And the arguments often go something like, for example, the biblical authors were culturally trapped 
They, uh, they were the victims of their own culture at the time. We have progressed beyond that. We have been liberated. We have, uh, we have been enlightened. We have grown as a humanity, as a human race, and transcend these, these barbaric kind of understandings of sexuality. So that's one argument. The biblical authors just were culturally trapped in their own time, and that's why they said these things. Another argument runs this way, and these are just summaries, but the Bible condemns promiscuous homosexual relationships, not faithful monogamous homosexual relationships, such as same-sex marriage. So what the Bible really condemns is not, not, not a marriage or sex between two men, but if those two men are not married, just like it would a man and a woman who would be living in immorality, that that's the problem. Another line of argumentation, especially here in Romans chapter 1, is that the Bible isn't condemning same-sex relationships for those who are naturally homosexual, but it's only condemning heterosexuals who engage in promiscuous same-sex relationships because that's unnatural for them. And therefore, that's what Romans 1 is really talking about. Okay, but if we, if we really look at these verses... The words nature and natural and unnatural, how it uses these words, make these unacceptable. For one thing, this word natural connects sexual relationships to created design, not to some cultural, uh, cultural definition, but to creation, how men and women are created In terms of the second argument that, that this is really just about promiscuous homosexual relationships, the problem is that the acts themselves are described as immoral, especially in verse 27. Men likewise gave up natural relations and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts. The acts themselves that are being committed and are shameless here. And thirdly, if we're going to say that Romans 1 isn't condemning same-sex relationships for those who are naturally homosexual, then we have to ask the question, does the phrase, when it uses the phrase, um, first of all, uh, the phrase contrary to nature... What does that mean? This was a phrase that was widely used in Greek literature to describe homosexual activity, not just monogamous homosexual relationships. This is a lifestyle and identity that is contrary to nature. And also, we have to ask, would naturally heterosexual men be consumed with passion for another man? If the answer to that question is yes, 
then it isn't unnatural. And the word has absolutely no meaning or place in this sentence. If the answer to that question is no, then he isn't speaking to heterosexual men who are violating their heterosexuality. So this word natural then is conveying God's design that is carried on in nature. And people, both women and men, suppress the glory of God, the truth of God, by exchanging his design for the human race for a perversion of that design, something false, something unnatural. Unnatural sexual desires and relations is an explanation here of dishonorable passions, which parallel dishonoring their bodies. And then in the next verse, a debased mind. And the Bible's point is how all of these distort what is right and good in God's design for, human, uh, for humanity. And for this, they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, again, some people say, ah, this is AIDS. This is the disease of AIDS. This is not AIDS, okay? Yes, AIDS is a sexually transmitted disease, just like there are many other sexually transmitted diseases. But there are many people who suffer from AIDS who do not practice homosexuality. And there are plenty of homosexual people who don't ever get AIDS, you might be able to say that AIDS is just part of this overall God's wrath being revealed against man, just like all kinds of disease and natural disasters and these kinds of things. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is uh, an eternal penalty. This penalty that is due when the wrath comes on that day of wrath, the day of the Lord. And when he says it is, it is in themselves, he is talking about the intimate and personal nature of that judgment. We've already looked at how Paul explains that sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body. It is self-destructive. This penalty that is due, that they, that they endure in themselves has to do with that, only it's, it's heightened, it's more intensified, because it is a perversion of sexual immorality. So Paul says that God, in his holiness and his righteousness, cannot turn his back on man's rebellion. But it leads us to a question then, and a fair one. Why does Paul zero in on homosexuality in this passage? Why this one? And I will say this, because sexuality goes to the core of personhood. It goes to the core of personhood. And it is that that has to be considered when we talk about all of the sexual revolution, whether that's transgenderism or bisexuality or the list. Sexuality goes to the core of personhood. Sexual immorality is a sin against our own bodies. 
because homosexuality demonstrates, this is why Paul zeroes in on it, it demonstrates the greatest depths to which humanity can go in its rejection of God's truth, his will, his design, because it is the greatest perversion of God's design for the most intimate way two people can relate to one another. And when God made them in his image, man and woman, homosexuality perverts that and turns it on its head. And so the practice and acceptance of homosexual relations becomes a marker for how far a culture has fallen from a true knowledge of God, how far it has gone in rejecting God, how far it has believed the lie. And is homosexuality a sin like every other sin? In one sense, yes. But in another sense, no, it's not. No, it's not. That's why Paul zeroes in on it here. The good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness. There is redemption for any purpose and any culture as a whole. As Crossway Fellowship lives out our calling to love others, to obey the truth, to proclaim Christ, we are a people where those who are lost and trapped in sin are loved. That's who we want to be, isn't it? It's who I want us to be. We want to be a place where someone who's, who's struggling with sin, even sin of homosexuality, which by many is... Uh, who know that it's sin and wrong becomes something that's just untouchable. We can't do that. I want Crossway Fellowship to be someplace where someone can come and be loved and brought face to face with the glory of God and the truth of God. They may reject it. That's okay. That's out of our control, right? Only the Holy Spirit's going to change somebody anyway. To be God's people, we cannot call okay what God clearly condemns. I want us to be able to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, for I think that God, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's Paul talking about in Romans 1. The righteousness of God, the unrighteousness of mankind. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there you go. Practice of homosexuality is put up there with theft and adultery and greed and swindling. Here it is one sin among many others. And Paul's very point is that those who practice these things cannot enter the kingdom of God. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And if we're, we look at that list, every one of us goes, well, that's, okay, I fit at least one or two of those, <laughs> if not all of them. 
verse 11, and such were some of you. There you go. There's the the gasp of relief. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who we are. That's who Crossway Fellowship is, isn't it? It's who we are as the people of God. We are all of that who have been washed and cleansed and saved, justified. And it is our calling to bring others into that hope and into that gospel. Now, verse 28, Paul here rephrases all of this once again. It's the same pattern as before. Right? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this see fit is, again, a term for willful rejections. They did not see fit. They refused to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So here this debased mind is, is a, a, it's like a darkened heart. It's like futile thinking. It's a mind that uh, can't, is incapable of assessing its own real condition or approving God's will, what God has said is right and wrong. And then he goes on to list these evils. When he says, a debased, uh, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, instead of looking this time at sexual sin, Paul lists, a, a t- but he expands the list this string of evils, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, covetousness, malice. Now, these look like just a random string, and many of them overlap. If there's any structure to it, it would be that the first four kind of general terms of evil, this unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, And then there are uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. So we have these sins that belong to the sin of envy and how it works itself out. And then we have a couple of terms for uh, sins of the mouth, of the tongue, speech. They are gossips, slanderers. And then we have some terms that all seem to come out of pride. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. So these are all the human pride. And then we have six terms that are just seem to be kind of miscellaneous. Inventors of evil. We're not content to just do what's wrong. We've got to invent new ways of doing what's wrong. Disobedient to parents. This is natural. I think one of the greatest uh, confirmations of the rebellion of the human heart is that children sin all on their own. 
And anyone who's a parent, or you don't have to be a parent to know this, anyone who's sat on an airplane with a three-year-old knows this to be true. It's not environmental. It's not just learned. That's natural. In fact, when I talk to to unbelievers about the issue of, of sin and the human nature, because what's, what's, the, what's the going opinion? We're good. We do some bad things, yes, and there are some evil people. They're on death row, okay? But by and large, human race is good. But when we're talking about human nature, I say, did you, have to, did you ever have to teach your, has your child ever lied to you? your child ever taken a piece of candy that you told them not to take? Did you teach them to do that? TV, if you watch children's shows, they don't encourage that. They try to not encourage that. How does a child know to do that? It's in their nature. Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Faithless. We are by nature dishonest. We are by nature without integrity, heartless, or not caring for people, ruthless. We could expand on any one of these. But these are all things that characterize the human race. And once again, God gave them over. We have been given over to the enslavement of this kind of conflict. Well, remember that this is the bad news that makes way for the good news of the gospel. But we have to come to grips with this condition. Let's look at verse 32. This is Paul's third point. We suppress the truth of God's decree and deserve to die. Verse 32. We suppress the truth of God's decree and deserve to die. Though they know God's righteous decree, how can they know God's righteous decree? Because the decree is more than just the law as it is written or God's word as it is written. Paul will go on in chapter 2 to explain that there is a, a knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil in every human being. That we know, even those who don't have the law of God, and he's looking at the Gentile world, who didn't have the special relationship with God through the law, how God can be pleased, how he should be worshipped. That even they, we, know what is right and wrong in our hearts. That's what he's talking about here. For though they knew the righteous decree of God... And that those who practice such things deserve to die. In that, it means that we, in our knowledge of God, in right and wrong, know that God is just in condemning us. That is part of the truth that we suppress. That God is just in taking us to task in judging us for our rebellion. But even though we know that, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And Paul is not saying that 
it's worse to approve it in others than to do it ourselves. He is saying that part of this cycle is that we perpetuate and lead others and draw others into this rebellion and into this cycle of sin and judgment, that we perpetuate the rebellion. That's what he's saying. So we suppress the truth of God's decree and we deserve to die. So this is the plight of the human race. (laughs) This is our condition. This is who we are. Now, Paul is explaining this to people who have already come to Christ. Christians, us, the church in Rome, the church here in Linwood, Crossway Fellowship. And he's saying this is the beginning point for understanding the proclamation of the gospel, though, that everybody, the entire human race, is under God's wrath. We have all rebelled. Then he's going to start talking about some exceptions, but this is the, this is the starting point. We need to be saved. We need to be redeemed because we start off as enemies. And it's our fault. It's our fault. The good news is that God has made a way. Even though he is the one who is rightly offended, God has made a way to restore us and to save us. So, Lord, we come this morning as your people and remember that such were some of us, (laughs) such were all of us, that we were all lost, that we were all sinners. And that, Lord, we can only come and, and even understand, have comprehension of Romans chapter 1 because you have given us light to understand the darkness that was. And Lord, we pray that in your grace, you would continue to break hearts, that you would continue to redeem lost people. And we who who know that we have come to be saved by grace, take no credit for it, but can only offer you thanks and honor you and remember with delight and gratitude that you are the God who has saved us. In your name we ask all of these things and proclaim them. Amen.